This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And they work hard to help small business become big ones by fighting for public policy that allows them to do just that. And you'll definitely want to stick around for this story because it's about the man behind perhaps one of the most recognizable brands in American history, brought to us by our own Joey Cortez. The world was a little simpler a little more magical. There were more heroes, more things to, to think about. And Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, they were my heroes. They were some of my heroes. You are listening to the story of a man who you all know, but don't really know. You know his brand, so you know his name, which wasn't always his name. He was born Ralph Lifshitz, the son of two Jewish immigrant outcasts from the Soviet Union. And despite a modest upbringing in the Bronx, New York, everyone knew Ralph as the man with swagger and style. You know, I had older brothers, so, you know, when you have older brothers to live up to, in a way, you sort of, uh, you're advanced more than kids your own age. So maybe I sort of wore what my brothers wore. And and, uh, I, I never thought about style. I didn't know what that word meant. And he didn't have to. He just naturally had it. I'm telling you, every time I see a picture of this man, I think to myself, my God, that man has style. Everything about him screams style. The perfect man to stop the European fashion moguls who were ready to take control of the American fashion market. You see, at the time, there wasn't much of an American fashion industry. And while the Beatles and their British invasion were pretty much taking control of the American rock and roll scene. The European fashion icons from Italy, the United Kingdom, and France were ready to take the American fashion scene by storm. Standing in their way was Ralph Lifshitz. But first, to complete his style, Ralph, at 16 years old, would change his name from Lifshitz to Lauren. That's right, folks. This is the story of Ralph Lauren. Years later, after serving in the army, working as a salesman for Brooks Brothers, and then a necktie manufacturer, Ralph began designing his own ties, marked by his wide, bold, and colorful designs during a time when plain skinny ties were in vogue. In the beginnings, when I started, the necktie industry was full of men wearing hats, and they were old men. And it was a very dead industry and here I came along and I had a sports car and I come with a tweed jacket and I zip into my car with a bag of ties and I go to the stores around the, around the area and I, uh, I was selling what I was, what I believed in. Selling himself and the American dream. You see, Ralph really couldn't afford that sports car. I mean, the man was selling ties out of a single drawer in a showroom of the Empire State Building, but he was investing in himself, his image, his brand, something his company would make possible for everyday Americans too, helping them dress and brand themselves in lifestyles they previously couldn't afford or find in stores. From the nostalgic Americana style of cattle herding cowboys to the style 
of Wall Street bankers. Ralph made those accessible to everyday Americans. I'm inspired by a lifestyle that is, that is happy. You know, we all go through our life hoping that we're going to be successful, hoping that we're going to be able to buy the house that we want, hoping that we can have the ranch or the, you know. So I was inspired by those worlds, you know. I was inspired, the thought of being a rancher, the thought about living in a log cabin, that was one of my dreams. But also I had another dream, you know, in the reality, of, you know, of uh, I love stone houses. You know, I love Persian rugs. I like, uh, I like elegance. I like them both. And I think I, in terms of what I was doing, is I wasn't, my things are new, but they're inspired by a concept of living as, as opposed to, to fashion. It's not just a jacket. Here's a jacket. My shoulders come out here now and, and buy it now because it's the hot new look. My jacket was the tweed jacket with the suede over patches, but it was great fabric. Maybe it had a... What you thought you can buy in England, what you thought Cary Grant was wearing and Fred Astaire, you could not walk into a store and buy. You couldn't buy. You couldn't walk into a store. No store has had that. When I came along, the business was not at all like. The things that I made, you could not buy. You couldn't find it. And they had a sense of familiarity because they were traditional in the sense that they had a... They weren't wild. But they were, they were, it's like injecting something and bringing it back in a sense of life. You couldn't walk into Bloomingdale's, you couldn't walk into Saks Fifth Avenue and buy a hacking jacket. Now, a hacking jacket was worn by the people that rode, you know, England. They get dressed and they wore the hacking jacket, it had a flare on the side vents. So, one thing is the product, the other thing is, is, where it goes. A man gets dressed, he goes, he's like, I have to go to dinner. He's, uh, he goes and buys a, a tie and he wants to look elegant that night. He's going to go back to his, he's going to feel elegant when he gets dressed that night. And he's going to go to a place and he says, wait a minute, I have this great club I'm going to and I'm going to wear this and I know I'm going to look great. So he, he feels strong about himself and he knows it's the appropriate thing to wear to this place. What I did was see these things. The hacking jacket represented a life that I loved. It was old England and they looked great. I don't know what it was at the time, but I said, you know, that hacking, I'd love to have that. Right. I couldn't find it in the store. I said, where can I get that? Where can I get it? And you couldn't get it anywhere. So I said, I'd like to make that. So I made it so you can wear it. It's a sport jacket. And these things, they sound vague, possibly, because they're part of our vernacular today, but it, it didn't exist. And neither did his first product, the wide tie. Well, it existed, but it just wasn't fashionable, and you really couldn't find them in stores. But soon enough, Ralph caught the attention of one of the largest department stores in the country. From selling ties out of a single drawer in the Empire State Building, to landing a meeting with Bloomingdale's. And when we come back, you won't believe the story you're about to hear. And what a story it is. A young man fashions the fashion business in an image that he thought the American people would love, and boy, did they. Ralph Lauren's story continues here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to Ralph Lauren's story. We left off with him entering his first sale with a pretty big client in New York City, Bloomingdale's. We bring you back to the late 1960s, and a young, handsome, and confident Ralph Lauren arrives in a sports car to a meeting with Bloomingdale's, eager to strike a deal, but not too eager. He showed them to the Bloomingdale tie buyer. That's Marvin Traub, a former president of Bloomingdale's. Who said, I like them, I'll buy them, but I don't want that Ralph Lauren label on it. I want a Bloomingdale label. Now here's Ralph starting and struggling in business, about to get an order from Bloomingdale's. He closed his sample case and said, I will not accept the order without my name. It's a matter of staying on a path, staying in a direction, having a point of view, believing in what you're doing, and having the, the, the scope and the focus to say, this is who I want to be, this is what I like. An important lesson for entrepreneurs, betting on yourself and your product, and having the wisdom for knowing when to strike a deal and when to walk away. And good thing Ralph did, because just a few months later, he would get a call back from Bloomingdale's. Here again is Marvin Traub. I thought the ties were terrific. And if he wanted his name on it, that was fine because I felt the ties would sell. Just one year with Bloomingdale's, Ralph sold a half million dollars in ties and soon enough caught the attention of other big department stores followed by an expansion from the tie industry into upscale menswear, women's wear, lifestyle, and home products. Ralph soon became a household name around the world. By 1986, Ralph Lauren's company was worth over an estimated half billion dollars. At a glance, things were going quite well, but a look behind the scenes told another story. In 1987, just as Ralph was about to make the cover of Time magazine, he was also diagnosed with a brain tumor. At the same time as I was on the cover of Time magazine, I knew Time magazine was coming out and I knew I was going in for a brain tumor operation. I couldn't enjoy either one of them. I couldn't enjoy Time magazine. And the two the two distances of life, the fact that, that on one hand I hit the heights of one side, and the other side the impossible thing happened on Time Magazine, and the impossible thing happened on Brain Tumor. How could I get a brain tumor? Where'd that come from? Where'd that come from? I look great. Where'd that come from? You know, that happens to somebody else. Time Magazine happens to somebody else. I was split right in half. So that alone was an incredible contrast in my life. Just my life has been an incredible contrast in growing up and go in my career. The heights were so hard to even deal with in a funny way. So the brain tumor coming along. Uh, fortunately, it was not. It was benign. The experience of looking at my wife and my family. I remember being being told that I have to go in for an operation. I remember seeing 
my daughter and my son were very little at the time. We were in this big open space, and I said, I can't believe this. I all of a sudden stepped out of my life and was looking at them as if I wasn't there anymore. And thankfully, Ralph had a successful surgery and came out of it with a newfound perspective on life. I was able to step away from myself and see life as something that was not always going to be here. I know the feeling of saying, I may not be around tomorrow. I have a lot of sensitivity to other people that somehow at this age, uh, I'm not groping in the world, trying to be something. I know who I am. And so did the rest of the world. Just two years later, Ralph Lauren's dreams would come true when one of his childhood heroes, Audrey Hepburn, would present him with the Oscar of the fashion industry, awarding Ralph with the Council of American Fashion Designers Lifetime Achievement Award. Here's Jeff Madoff, a close business associate of Ralph Lauren. There was one of his muses, his icons, Audrey Hepburn, the woman that he watched when he was a little kid in the movies, now handing him this statue that for him could have been the Oscar. Remember the princess? I got her. <laughs> Ralph was sitting at the throne of the fashion industry, but that throne wasn't very sturdy. His company, suffering from distribution problems and massive expenditures on brand recognition, was on the road to bankruptcy. Luckily, Ralph was thrown a lifeline by Goldman Sachs, buying 28% of his company, worth over an estimated quarter billion dollars today. Soon enough, Goldman Sachs brought Ralph Lauren's company public. This scared Ralph. While Goldman helped salvage his company, allowing him to expand and open up restaurants and stores in almost every major hub around the world, and perhaps becoming one of the most recognizable brands in human history, Ralph feared that he would have less and less control over his brand. Though with bold and crafty leadership and marketing, Ralph managed to instill his undying legacy within his company, his undying style. A style marked by Ralph's nostalgia for the American West, a life of hard work, grit, and meaning, and a style marked by the future he always envisioned for himself, one of accomplishment and success, which all goes back to the very people he admired as a kid. I was very influenced by movies. I was very influenced by uh, a world that had a sense of dream, that had a sense of something else. And what I was influenced in these places was the good guy, the, 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 the Hopalong Cassidy, um, not the corny guy, but the, there was the man on the white horse. You know, if you think of a cowboy, you think of fringe jackets and old leather things. Think of a you think of certain um, images that, that represent something that are never dying. I always liked country clothes, tweediness. I always loved my history teacher who wore gum sole shoes and suede elbow patches. Uh, so it's a combination of, of heroes, in a way, that um, had, a, had a something to them. Heroes like the actors who both dressed and conducted themselves with class, and the gritty adventurous characters they played in the movies. A very unique thing 
to have a brand inspired by two entirely different worlds. If you watch Gary Cooper in the movies, you'd see Gary Cooper was a very elegant man. At the same time, he had a ranch where he grew up, uh, and you'd see, you'd see uh, High Noon, and you really believed he was a cowboy. Well, I loved this guy in both roles. You know, I, he was a hero to me, and he was rugged and tough, and at the same time, he was very elegant. And, and so it wasn't, um, you know, I don't believe you can live, you can have to be one thing. Like the American dream, a notion that has allowed people to not only dream for a different life, but to attain it. Illustrated by the very life of Ralph Lauren and his company, helping people from around the world be the people they dream to be. You know, I think what's been interesting in, in, in my life is the impossible things have happened in so many different ways. I never went to fashion school. What am I doing here? You know, what am I doing on these lists? What am I doing with these fashion shows? How am I doing it? I can't tell you because it's an amazing thing to me. It's not, I'm doing it. I know I'm doing it because it didn't exist before I came. I didn't, it didn't happen before and someone said, okay, Ralph, do it. And I've done products that I never, I didn't have any training. I don't know how it's happening. It's an amazing thing for me. At the same time, I don't know how I had the brain to and all those things. But life is about that in a way. A, a fellow I worked with that came at the office said, it was from another company, said, he said, you know, up till now I thought I had to change in this world, in this business, because people are tough and rough, you know, and they're not always so nice. He said, I was just in your company, I was working with your people, and they're so nice. You know, and I think maybe, maybe I have the right answer. Maybe people aren't all that tough in this business. My sense is that you can make your life be whatever you want it to be. And great job on that, Joey. Impossible things have happened in my life. He never went to fashion school. He said no to Bloomingdale's in his early 20s. He wanted his name on the label. Crazy, right? Goldman Sachs, by the way, comes in, the big bad banks, and saves the company. The American dream here, that's what we call these stories, American dreamer stories, none better than Ralph Lauren's. This is Our American Stories. continue here with our American stories and today our own Alex Cortez brings us the voice and story of Trudy Kathy White the author of the book Climb Every Mountain. Here's Trudy with some stories. You know, when I was a little girl, I used to look out into our backyard and I saw this massive looking mountain and our family used to climb up this mountain and watch the sunset and in the springtime, in the summer. And so I've just always kind of been fascinated with mountains. For me, mountains have been a symbol of 
of God. It's just when I'm in the mountains, I feel so close to the Lord. When I look at the mountains, I recognize the fact that they're so unchanging. They're always there. They were created by God. They're just a reflection of who God is in terms of his character, his faithfulness, and his love. You can just count on him. In a changing world, he's the one thing that never changes. But at the same time, I look at these mountains and they remind me they're kind of a symbol of life's challenges, that life is hard and it's difficult. And when we're going through difficult times in our life, we feel like we're just trying to put one foot in front of the other. And it seems like, you know, the, the more we climb, the harder it seems to get. And so I was in a really dark season of my life and I was kind of thinking in my mind, boy, does anybody else have to deal with life like this? Am I the only one? And then of course I realized, well, of course I'm not the only one. Everybody has problems and challenges and, and difficulties. And I thought, you know, I think I'll, I'll just want to write about personal stories of challenges that I've had and how I have found God to be faithful in every one of those. And one of Trudy Kathy White's very first mountains was who she was. Going off to camp as a little girl, my parents took me to overnight camp and I went to a girls camp. My brothers went to a boys camp and I loved being at the camp, one, because there were mountains, but two, because I could kind of be who I was. Everywhere I went, I was introduced as, you know, this is Trudy, the daughter of Jeanette and Trick Kathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, or, you know, I was introduced as this is the sister of Dan and Bubba Kathy, my two brothers. But at camp, I was just Trudy, and it was good to be in an environment like that where I could kind of just be myself. When I got older, I served as the director for another camp for about 13 years, and when the campers were coming in for their first day at camp, parents were bringing them in. Parents would come up to me to introduce their children to me, and they would say, uh, you know who this is? This is Trudy. She's going to be your camp director. And then the next thing they would say is they said, but do you know who she really is? And then they would say, she's the daughter of the man who invented that Chick-fil-A that you like to eat. And that, that was just, you know, over and over and over. And when people would say that comment, do you know who she really is? I, I would think in my mind, you know, I understand what they're saying, but that's not really who I am. So in my old self, I you know, used to think about if I only look at what I do and who I am, it's not a very good way to kind of really understand my identity. In terms of what I do, I, I do a lot. I'm a speaker, I'm an author, I'm a representative with Chick-fil-A family. And in terms of, you know, who I am, my goodness, that's a loaded question. I'm a grandmother, I'm a wife, I'm a sister, I'm a daughter, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot of things, but that doesn't define me. And when I stay right there with those questions and those type of answers, what it does for me is it causes me to play this comparison game. So I start looking at other people and I say, well, I can do this, but look at what they can do. Why can't I do what they do? Or this is who I am. I wish I could be like this person. So we, we compare ourselves all the time. And my mother used to tell us when we were children, she would stand at the back door as we would leave out for the day. And she had this little phrase. She would say, remember who you are and whose you are. And when we hear that statement when we were young, I don't think we really got it. But later on, it was so important that we realized who we are. Because you think about the fact that I am because He is, because God made me, that's why I even exist. 
And you kind of ask, well, am, am I am I my own? You know, do I have do I get to make my own choices? Do I get to, to make all the, the decisions for my life? And I realize, hey, you know, I'm really not my own. I've been bought with a price. Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for me, so the Bible says that He paid the penalty for my sin. And actually, who I am is all wrapped up in who God is and what He's doing through my life. So it gives you a whole new perspective on life. And you don't have to compare yourself to other people. You just try to walk the walk that God has given you and understand how you're wired and how God has gifted you and recognize the fact that the value that comes in your life because of that. More mountains popped up for Trudy, especially when she and her husband decided to enter a foreign land. John and I were missionaries in Brazil for quite a while, and when we first went, we realized that we were going to have to learn Portuguese, and Portuguese is a difficult language, and it's hard enough, particularly if you're an adult, very, very difficult. And I remember one day, I just kind of had it. I thought, I, I, I want to go back to the States. I can't do this. I, I went in my bedroom. I remember I shut the door. I was really, really angry with the Lord, and I began to cry, and I just poured my heart out to Him, and I said, Lord... You know, I, I'm trying so hard. I just can't do this. My daughter was four years old. You know, she's young and she's catching on to the language. And she got to the point where she could understand and, and speak things better than I could. So I depended on her a lot. I took her with me. If you can imagine a four-year-old, long blonde hair, blue eyes, and here's this mother so dependent on her little girl to help her with the language. But one day we were shopping together and I couldn't think of the word that I needed to use. So I asked her, how to say the word and she told me a word and I said it to the uh, Brazilian lady there and the lady acted like she didn't understand me so I asked my daughter Joy I said tell me that word one more time and let me say it to the lady and she gave me a word I said it but the third time I looked around and my daughter was laughing because she just made up a word it wasn't Portuguese at all and I realized what she was doing she thought you know this will be a fun game to play with my mom she doesn't know the language very well and she'll repeat anything that I tell her. So <laughs> so she made up a word and it was not funny at the moment. In fact, I was totally embarrassed. I, I thought she was being extremely disrespectful and I put her in the car, I got in the car and, and we left and I went home. And that was when I had this moment, this encounter with the Lord. I, I put her in a room and I went to a room and I tried to hash this thing out with the Lord because I, I told him, I said, you know, my own daughter's turned her back on me. I don't know what I'm going to do now. You know, it's like, I don't have any more help. I don't have any more resources. And then the Lord kind of hits me over the head and says, Trudy, you know, I'm the one you need to depend on, you know, not your daughter. I go back to that moment many times, even now, and I'm reminded that, okay, I'm encountering something that I think is going to be difficult or it's going to stretch me, but I'm going to depend on the Lord because I feel like this is the thing I need to be doing. And I think that's an awesome place to live your life because I think God really wants us to step out of our zone every once in a while and do some things that maybe we've not tried before and allow Him to show what He can do through us. So that's amazing. I think that's a big part of this idea of just walking day to day in a personal relationship with the maker of this world. And you're listening to Trudy Kathy White. And by the way, she's author of Climb Every Mountain, which you can buy at climbeverymountain.com. And what a unique voice. And my goodness, she was mad at her daughter when she shouldn't have. Her daughter didn't disrespect her. She was just having a little fun with mom. And if mom had had a better sense of humor and was in the space that she needed to be, she could have enjoyed it. But that's where she came to depend on her relationship with God to get her through that moment to set her straight. And for so many Americans, myself included, that relationship with God is primal. 
and Christians, Jews, Muslims. It's a primal relationship. And then for all the non-believers out there, well, we tell your stories too, and we're sensitive to all of them because this is a country filled with all kinds of good people trying to do good things in their own way. And my goodness, Trudy Kathy White is just such a person. I mean, going to Brazil to do mission work and help people in need, this isn't just a casual relationship with witnessing to her God. This is honoring her God, and we need to see and hear more stories about what people do that's positive because of their faith. Trudy Kathy White's walk, her stories, her voice, it all continues here on Our American Stories. with Our American Stories and Trudy Kathy White, who's sharing some honest and vulnerable stories from her book, Climb Every Mountain. You know, health is something that we all really appreciate and value and are blessed when we've got good health. But, you know, John was feeling super great, went to the doctor and got diagnosed with cancer. And it was a hard blow. Um, when, when John got that news, we realized that his dad's health was failing. In fact, just a few weeks later, his dad passed away and John was facing surgery for his cancer. And, and it was a really hard time. And then after the surgery, John thought, well, that's it, I'm, I'm cured and it won't happen again. But sure enough, you know, two years later, he was diagnosed with cancer again and had to go through radiation treatment. And that was when things seemed like, you know, really gloomy for us, it was like, okay, this is probably going to be it. Will John be around very long? And it wasn't a good time at all for us. Yeah, you know, every day John was going for radiation treatment and I would ride with him in the car and we had a little book that we read together, riding together to the hospital each time. And then when we would go and sit in the waiting room there, you know, you begin to see the same people over and over. You've got to go every day. We were there Monday through Friday for six solid weeks. and. And to begin to see some of the same faces. And I, I kept a little book with me that just was my journal that I would write in from time to time. And occasionally when I would sit there while John was back getting radiation treatment, I would just kind of look around the room and see people that were there. And I began to try to use that time rather than feeling sorry for myself and thinking I wish I was somewhere else and not here. I began to try to use that time to pray for the people around me and even got to sometimes have conversations with them but I would begin to document those times of sitting in the room. And so I put those in my book to try to help people see. These are some of the things that were kind of going through my mind. On day four, I wrote down, you know, emotions seem heavy, mostly because of the unknown. I'm thankful to cast all my cares on the Lord because I'm confident that He cares for me. And my prayer was, you are my God, earnestly, I seek you, I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you. 
And then I began to, you know, I, I didn't write for a few days and then we got to day seven after having such a heavy heart. On day seven we were there, I wrote, beginning to recognize the same people coming in for their treatments. I'm finding myself drawn to pray for those who are here. Some are all alone. I'm thankful to walk this journey with John, whether convenient or inconvenient. It's good to affirm my commitment to him when we got married in sickness or in health. I do. Just two days later, on day number nine, yesterday, a man sat by me waiting on his wife. She's getting both radiation and chemo treatment. They stay at the Hope Lodge in the Atlanta area and they return home each weekend only to find grass to cut, bills to pay. He told me that they're both so very tired. My prayer, Lord, meet the needs of this dear couple. Give them a sense of your hope today. Give him patience and love as he cares for his wife. Sustain them today. So what you see happening in my journaling is that, you know, this particular day nine, I'm already beginning to kind of shift my focus to other people. Uh, which is so healthy for us to try to do when we're going through hard times to look at what are the needs of other people. I may be needy right now, but boy, there are other people around me that are needy as well. So when I get to day 11, whether in suffering or success, in strength or weakness, in greatness or defeat, His grace sustains. He gives the victory. Next day, Day 12, finding today to be hard, not for John, but for me. Getting up, getting dressed, going downtown over and over, eventually seems tiring. Prayer, please let me be John's number one supporter. Let me keep my eyes fixed on you. Give us laughter in the journey, joy along the way, increased faith in you for whatever the future holds. Day 38, which is down the road a bit. The end. It's now in sight. The days have really been long, but thank you, God. You have used our children and our friends to offer so much support through prayers, texts, cards, calls, words of encouragement and promises from your word. Today, I cling to Deuteronomy 31.8. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Looking back, and John's actually doing really well now. His cancer is in remission, and he's back up almost 100% in, in work and everything. But going through that time, it was interesting because it caused us to have some really important, necessary conversations. We had to talk about, okay, what would happen if John passed away, and how would I manage life? And, you know, we would talk to our children about this. And, you know, those are things you don't necessarily feel like you want to really talk about, but it's very interesting that we all plan our days, we plan our calendars, we kind of talk about what we're going to do next week or even a month from now, and we really aren't even assured of life uh, for even the next day, and yet we plan for it. And, but we rarely talk about death, and we know that death 
is a reality and it will happen. We don't know when it'll happen, but we are assured that we are not here on this earth forever. And so we talked about the things that we probably should have talked about maybe even sooner, but when you're facing the reality that death could be knocking at your door, then it kind of forces you, I guess, to begin to have those kind of conversations. And so out of those conversations comes some really sweet, sweeter and richer relationships, I guess you could say. I know that John and I, you know, we've been married 41 years, but wow, we are so much further down the road now just because of the season we've walked through. I wouldn't ask to walk through it, but having been through it, God has used it to strengthen our marriage for sure. I would encourage parents that, you know, when you have a difficulty you're facing, whether it's death or it might even be a wayward child and it's tough on you as a parent, the best thing a mom and dad can do is stick together and not let that difficulty pull you apart because it is easy to kind of withdraw and you got to pull together in your time of difficulty. So I look back on it and I say, God has used it to pull our family together to be even closer now. So then we turn around and then both my parents have passed away. So those are heavy things to deal with back to back. And I remember just you know, the fact that they were gone and sitting and thinking, okay, now what, I, I really am orphaned. I don't have a mother or a dad. And it was a season of about three, four straight years of having that kind of loss in our family that was very challenging. It's interesting when I was just a, 10 years younger, 10 years ago, I used to think, well, it shouldn't be that big a deal if your parents pass away, if you're already an adult, and particularly if they've lived a long life. That That's not shouldn't be a really heavy loss. And I was kind of shocked just how hard it was to here I am in my 60s and my mom and dad are gone. It, it feels very heavy and I would not have really understood that from other friends. In earlier years, if they told me their parents passed away, I would think, well, you know, they're probably dealing okay with it because after all, they're adults anyway. And it's not true. So it's, it's hard to really understand what somebody else is going through if you haven't walked through it or at least in some form or fashion experienced yourself. Grief is real and we have to be very sensitive to that for people when they're walking through and what we should and maybe what we even shouldn't say. Oftentimes less is best. The less you say, sometimes people just need an arm around the shoulder, a pat on the back or just a real sincere, I'm so sorry. And a lot of times they don't need to hear a lot of words. They just need to know that they're there. And just as we talk about when we walk through grief, it's important that you remember that God is with you. I think the presence of people around, your presence is very powerful. And many people avoid being with somebody maybe who's walking through grief because they say, I just don't know what to say to them. You know, it's kind of awkward. I don't, I don't know how to carry on the conversation with them because I know that they're dealing with something that's very difficult. And yet, the very thing that they need might be just your presence, just to be there with them. You don't have to really carry on a lot of conversation. Oftentimes, it's just the little things that we do that can make such a big difference to encourage other people. My dad often said, there's an easy way to know if people need encouragement. And he said, if they're breathing, they need encouragement. And so, you know, we're all living life and we all need someone to encourage us. And so if we can find a way to encourage people around us, through a word or an action or just our own presence. I think it's so important and it brings some healing to the grief that people are going through. And great job on that, Alex. You've been listening to Trudy Kathy White. And my goodness, if you're breathing, 
you need encouragement, what great wisdom and words from a father, and what true words, and what a walk that Trudy had to walk, not only with her husband suffering from cancer, but then losing two parents as well. And it's true, no matter how old you get, losing both of your parents means, well, there's no one to talk to and call up when you need some help and encouragement from those wise voices who had loved you all those years. And by the way, what she did in that hospital ward, how many of us go into that ward and just put our heads down, but that she looked around and looked for opportunities for grace and love and mercy and and camaraderie, Uh, just beautiful. And what a beautiful voice, a much-needed voice in this world, in this time. Trudy Cathy White, her story. By the way, the book is Climb Every Mountain. Go to climbeverymountain.com. Trudy Cathy White's story here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from business to history to the arts, sports, and everything in between, and your stories, too. And this one is a special one. More than a half a century after it hit theaters, Mary Poppins is still one of the most beloved films ever. Here's Greg Hengler with the story. You may have seen the 2013 period drama Saving Mr. Banks, starring Emma Thompson and Tom Hanks as filmmaker Walt Disney, who attempts to obtain the screen rights to P.L. Travers' Mary Poppins novels. Whether you've seen the movie or not, we thought we'd kick it up a notch and hear from the people who were actually there. Now, let's begin with television and screen legend Dick Van Dyke. I think all would agree that Mary Poppins truly is Walt Disney's crowning glory. Like Mary Poppins herself, the film is practically perfect in every way. The perfect creative team, perfect songwriters, the perfect cast, and the perfect person to put it all together, Walt Disney. But getting started wasn't that easy. Here's Disney animator Andreas Dejas and P.L. Travers biographer Valerie Lawson. I remember him being interviewed for it, and he said that his daughter Diane had read the books And she actually was the one who said, Dad, maybe there is something for you here. And he loved the books too. So it was something very personal to him from the start. P.L. Trevor's Mary Poppins was published in 1934 in London. But it wasn't until about four years afterwards, in 1938, that Walt Disney went after the rights. Mrs. Travers, however, wasn't too keen. Allegedly, she said she'd seen other books that had been turned into movies and she didn't like the way they'd been treated by Hollywood. But Walt never, ever gave up on a good idea. And in 1944, he tried again. Walt sent his brother to try and convince Pamela, who was in New York, that she would release the rights to him. But she wouldn't. Now, over the next few years, there are several offers made and as many refusals. And these... these conversations they had are all recorded. Now we come to my notes here, my typewritten notes, and this is what I want to make very clear. The book should be read very carefully for atmospheres. It is integral to the book and to the story that Mary Poppins should never be impolite to anybody. You brought your references, I presume, may I see them? 
Oh, I make it a point never to give references. A very old-fashioned idea to my mind. Is that so? Here's song composer and lyricist for Mary Poppins, Richard Sherman, and film historian Brian Sibley. No, 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 don't make it like that. There were so many hesitations in, in her acceptance of the idea that the father and mother change and become warmer and more loving. She said, not a change of heart, because he's always been sweet, but worried with the cares of life. I think she had 30 days to consider. On the 30th day, she relented, but she had to be the consultant. It seems unbelievable after all that had gone on, but almost 20 years from the point when Walt Disney had set out on this quest, Mrs. Travers agrees on certain conditions that the film might be made. We were considering a number of people to play the part of Mary Poppins. We had uh, uh, Mary Martin, and we were thinking of Betty Davis, and then we were also thinking of Angela Lansbury. But uh, it wasn't until one evening when the Ed Sullivan show had an excerpt from Camelot, and a young woman named Julie Andrews and Richard Burton saying, what do the simple folk do? And I called my brother. I said, Bob, oh my God, she's absolutely perfect. Next day we walked into DeGrati's office and Don DeGrati says, did you see the Ed Sullivan show last night? I mean, it was just wow. So we walked down the hall, the three of us, to, we want to see Walt. Here's Tony Walton, Mary Poppins' costume and set designer, and his then-wife, Mary Poppins herself, Julie Andrews. P.L. Travers had approval, pretty much, of everything in her contract, so Walt said that Julie would need to be auditioned or passed by the author of the stories. I met her very briefly in London. She, I think, was fond of me and, and approved of my doing Poppins. Uh, I know she said that I had the nose for it. As I expected, Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. She was quite happy with Julie Andrews, though. She was more than happy. She loved her performance. Roaming for everyone, gather around. The constable responsible. Now, how does that sound? Walt Disney was reading in a newspaper an article about what people thought about the cinema today, and he came across a comment by Dick Van Dyke which said that he personally did not like the way in which modern-day movies were trending towards, as he put it, dirty pictures. Now, this was something that Walt himself felt very, very strongly about, and he thought, oh, this man's a man after my own heart. So he had a look at some of Dick's work, and he asked Dick to come over to the studio. They met. Instantly, they liked one another, and almost instantly, Walt was offering him the part to play Bert. Can't put me finger on what lies in store, but I feel what's to happen all happened before. I'd only been in one movie myself, so I was about as green as anything. And uh, Julie, despite the fact it was her first film, was perfectly professional. She had a camera personality. She knew where the camera was. She knew where the lights were, as if she had done it all her life. She was thoroughly professional from the beginning. Of all the wonderful things that Walt was coming up with for this movie, one of the greatest moments in my songwriting career was we had finished this song, Jolly Holiday, and we were playing it for the first time for Walt, and Don DeGrati had developed a bunch of beautiful sketches for this thing. And there's a section in the song where four waiters were going to come out. And Walt said, hold it. And he said, waiters have always reminded me of penguins. 
So they made them penguins. That would have never occurred to any human being except Walt Disney. He had this wonderful, whimsical way about him. Walt said, as a matter of fact, we'll animate everything in that sequence except for the principal characters. You know, we can do that. We have this sodium vapor process that Ub Iwerks has created. When Mary holds your hand, you feel so grand. Your heart starts beating like... It was a high point of my life when I saw that finally put together with the real animation in there. What a masterful job it was. Walt took all of his little bag of tricks that he developed over 35 years and put, put them into this picture. I did a glorious die, right as a morning in mine. I feel like And I when we come back, we'll continue the story of Mary Poppins here on Our American Stories. The grass so green or a bluer sky. Oh, it's a jolly holiday with Mary. Mary makes your heart so light. Chim chimney, chim chimney, chim chim chimney. A sweep is as lucky as lucky can be. Chim chimney, chim chimney, chim chim chimney. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Mary Poppins. Here's Glennis Johns, who played Mrs. Winifred Banks. I think the one thing that comes off with Disney movies of the old days, and especially Walt himself, was his love of innocence. And I think that's what Walt revered in We Children, and that's what he wanted to send us away with still, and he succeeded. Ellen, we had the most glorious meeting. When we were casting the film, Walt immediately said, I know the perfect person to play the mother, and that is Glynis John. She's just absolutely right. And we all agreed, she's absolutely perfect. Gracious, Kate and Anna, you're not leaving. What will Mr. Banks say? He's going to be cross enough as it is to come home and find the children missing. Here's Glennis Johns, who played Mrs. Winifred Banks. I said to Walt, it might give me an incentive if I could have my own little number. Walt reached over and said, but Glennis, the boys are just finishing a great number for you. You're going to love it. Wait till you hear it. So he says, all right, all right. I'll have to hear it, and if, 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 I, if I like it, then I might, I might consider doing the part. So she left, Walt said, get on this thing, you, know, you gotta write something for her. But we had this song that we had written called Practically Perfect. So we said, hmm, that could be a suffragette song. By the time I got back to the Chateau Marmont, the telephone was ringing, and it was Walt. He said, listen to this. I heard the first few bars of Sister Suffragette. Clearly soldiers in petty coats and dauntless crusaders for women's votes. Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. Glynis was interested then. When I think now of how nearly I didn't do it, it's amazing because I'm so proud to be part of it. It was the only time I've ever been working on a project where 
At the end of each day, I walk away saying, this is so good. I knew from the very beginning, after every day shooting, how good that movie was going to be. Our songwriters, Dick and Bob Sherman. We asked Walt if we could have a half an hour of his time, and uh, we played a few song ideas we had. He was very impressed with what we were coming up with, and uh, at the end of this meeting, uh, he said, play me that, uh, that Bird Woman song again. Come feed the little birds, show them you care. It was about charity, and about giving somebody something that they didn't ask for, but that they could use love. Please, may we feed the birds? Waste your money on a lot of ragamuffin birds? Certainly not. Feed the birds, toppence a bag. Walt, from the time he heard it, just loved that song. Never said it to us, but he would, like a Friday afternoon, he'd call us up and say, come over, and 5.30, 6 o'clock, we'd come over to his office, and he'd say, play it. <laughs> and I'd play Feed the Birds and sing it for him. Feed the birds, a bag. And he'd, yep, that's what it's all about. Have a good weekend, boys, and then he'd send us home. He loved that song. It was his favorite. Here's Richard Sherman, Julie Andrews, and Dick Van Dyke. And Walt Disney gave that tuppence a bag with the lady who played the Bird Woman. Her name was Jane. Uh, Jane Darwell. And what happened was Walt said, I know the perfect person to play this part if she'll do it. She's, she's old and frail, oh. but I want her to do it. And Walt... Was that is, the last thing she ever did? Yes, it was. And, mm. and uh, she died soon after she did it. But oh. they sent a, a special car for her. They treated her like a star. Walt came down to the sound stage oh. to, to see her. She was so yeah. thrilled and happy. She cried because she said Walt Disney was so kind to her. That was giving that... Tuppence. Tuppence a bag. It's super califragilistic, expialidocious. The musical style was really boiled beef and carrot. It's boiled beef and carrot, an old English uh, folk song. Super califragilistic, expialidocious. And, and any old iron, any old iron. It's uh, silly little songs that they wrote in those years, and uh, we wanted to feel like that, and yet be original and, and totally our own. When the film was released, audience response was overwhelming, and it became an instant phenomenon. It was the biggest hit in the history of the studio. Mary Poppins had worked her magic on the world. Mary Poppins premiered on August 1964 at Grauman's Chinese Cinema on Hollywood Boulevard. They tell me this could be one of your biggest pictures, Mr. Disney. Well, we haven't retired yet. I'm so nervous I'm about to die. It's such an exciting night. This is the night of all. The red carpet, we had the big tent out. Yeah, yeah. We had a big garden party built out on the, on on the back, rock yes. the back. And the reaction was wonderful. <laughs> what a novation I got at the end. The reviews were fantastic. I never read reviews like that. They were all glowing, th thrilling reviews. It was a remarkable success, a very, very big popular success, which, I mean, that, that is the greatest thing I think anybody could have, is seeing people enjoying and laughing and crying to your work. It's just the one, most wonderful thing in the world. For the best actress in a musical or comedy, the nominees are... At the Golden Globe Awards in February 1965, Julie Andrews was nominated for Mary Poppins, 
opposite Audrey Hepburn for My Fair Lady. And suddenly, I don't know how it came about, maybe Bill Walsh brought it up, but we suddenly realised that if, if Jack Warner had asked me to do My Fair Lady, which I missed out on, I would never have been able to do Mary Poppins. The winner is Julie Andrews, Mary Poppins. Thank you very much for this lovely honour. It's a wonderful memento of a very, very happy time. And I took an enormous gulp and said, Finally, my thanks to a man who made a wonderful movie and who made all this possible in the first place, Mr. Jack Warner. Everybody screamed. It was like a thunderous scream. And everyone's laughing, including Mr. Warner. So I was home and safe. And that was her little sweet revenge, I think. It was great. Congratulations. Thank you very much. When a few weeks later, the Academy Award nominations were announced, Mary Poppins received an amazing 13 nominations. Among the nominations include Best Picture, Director, Actress, Screenplay, Cinematography, Art Direction, Visual Effects, Original Song, and Score. There probably aren't words to describe your emotion. Now, 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 gentlemen, please. On the contrary, there's a very good word. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> the magic of it had escaped me, pounding it out every day. When it was all put together, there was. It, there was something else besides what we put into it. I don't know what serendipity came along, but there was a wonderful magic aura about that movie that nobody expected. And it's just as I say, every time I see the film, I think it's better and better. And now each generation is going to enjoy it in a different way. Tom the Kite needs a proper tail, don't you think? It was such a contribution to family entertainment, and I, I know that it's going to be around for a, for a long time. It, it stands as the perfect Walt Disney movie, as far as I'm concerned. I had the pleasure, the honor, really, of, of being asked to, to uh, help dedicate the Walt Disney statue at Disneyland. It was his 100th birthday, and so I was, I have to do that, and they said, would you play a couple of songs? And I said, okay. And I played a couple of things, and I said, I'm now gonna play Walt Disney's favorite song, and it's just for him. And I sang and played Feed the Birds, Tuppence the Bag. I finished my song, and I blew a kiss to Walt statue like that, I said, Happy birthday, Walt, and I got down. And they told me afterwards, just toward the end, out of the clear blue sky, one bird flew down right over where I was playing and off again into the clouds. Well, that moves me very much. That was Walt saying thanks. I'm Greg Hingler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And again, go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter. Just give us your email address and we'll give you five of our best stories each week, every week. And thanks to the folks at MyPillow.com for providing sponsorship and support to this show. And go to MyPillow.com and get their pillows. My wife and I use them. And my goodness, sleep's been better ever since. Just go to MyPillow.com. And type in stories. Give it a shot. I promise you, you'll sleep better. It's helped me. It's helped my bride. And my goodness, as we go out, we'll be listening to the great Julie Andrews singing the story of Mary Poppins here on Our American Stories. Poppins. 
continue here with our American stories, and it's time for our Rule of Law series, where we tell stories about what happens when the rule of law is present or absent in our lives. Here's Jesse. In 2014, Erica Perez and her father, Rumaldo, bought a small apartment complex with a detached home on two lots in Detroit, Michigan, with plans to renovate the apartments, rent them out, and to live in the house. The property cost $60,000 in savings and tens of thousands more for the renovation. They were pursuing the American dream. Romaldo had worked for decades as a tailor in Manhattan to save up the money for this investment that would ensure the prosperity of his family for generations to come. Tenants moved in, and the family put the rent money back into the property for further improvements. Here's Erica Perez. We started fixing it literally like weeks after my dad bought it like we like they destroyed everything from the inside and rebuilt everything years went by and the perez family was making it work that is until one of their tenants informed them that someone was claiming to have sold the property my dad was going to go pick up the rent and then the people had told us that um there was people going to the house to take pictures of it so they asked my dad like what was going on as it turns out The Perez family was behind on their property taxes, and the Wayne County treasurer had foreclosed on the property. It was a surprise, to say the least, considering they thought they were up to date on their payments. Even more surprising is that the local government had foreclosed on the Perez family property, over $144 in unpaid taxes from the year 2014. County officials then turned around and sold the property for $108,000 and kept every last dime. Christina Martin is an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation, the oldest and most successful public interest law firm that fights for limited government property rights and individual rights. They're representing the Perez family in this case free of charge, and thankfully so, as the cost for the Perez family to fight this on their own would be... Astronomical by the time you get done. Now, there are some cases where people sue and they manage to settle or win fairly quickly those are unusual i've been in cases that uh, that you know they go on for years go up on appeal and you know it ends up costing if you if if a person had to pay an attorney for it a million dollars conceivably that sounds excessive but honestly when you have to appeal cases and a lot of the times the cases we get involved with the only way we win is by appealing up to higher level courts We've had some wins in the U.S. Supreme Court. It could be um, smaller. It could be, you know, in the tens of thousands of dollars, or it could be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it can actually exceed a million dollars to litigate claims like this, and at least to do it well. And it's not just an isolated case. Aside from the Perez family, there are several others who are involved in litigation with the state of Michigan that Pacific Legal Foundation is fighting for as well. We have a case, actually, that's pending in the Michigan Supreme Court, so it's sort of hard for me to talk about the Perez's case without talking about that. Um, We filed this claim uh, hoping to build on the case that's pending in the Michigan Supreme Court. In that case, our client, Yuri Raffelli, accidentally underpaid his property taxes by $8. 
the, the local government, uh, uh, Oakland County, foreclosed on the property, sold it for 25000 so it was worth much more, and kept all the profits. So it's a similar story, um, except it was probably not as devastating for Mr. Raffelli as for this family because he at least, you know, it's not the only property that he owns. This was a rental home, fortunately, but it was still devastating. This was a source of income. He's elderly. He's retired, and this was supposed to be an inheritance for his children. So we got the Michigan Supreme Court to agree to hear one of the legal questions that his case raised, and that's the question of whether when the government takes private property to pay a small debt, does it violate the constitutional requirement that government pay you just compensation when it takes private property for a public use if they take more than they're owed? And we, of course, say it that it does, uh, and I think that the, that the law is very clear on that. When our country was founded, you know, in other words, when this constitutional protection in the Fifth Amendment was adopted, tax collectors and private debt collectors were all required to follow the same sort of common law rules that when they collect on debt, they can seize property, sure, and sell it even, but then they have to refund the extra profits back to the former owner, you know, after paying for the cost of debt collection. So that right traces all the way back to the colonial days. It goes all the way back to England. You can find protections in Magna Carta that relate to debt collection um, by the king. So essentially, when government takes more than it's owed and and keeps all those extra profits, it's violating the, the takings clause. The takings clause is a provision in the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution which states that private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation. While the Fifth Amendment itself only applies to actions by the federal government, the Fourteenth Amendment extends the takings clause to actions by state and local government as well. The government has argued, and when I say the government, I don't just mean the county involved there. Uh, There's a number of other counties that have together filed briefs asking the Michigan Supreme Court to okay, to rubber stamp this practice of taking more than they're owed in taxes. And one of the arguments that they've raised is that as long as they give notice of what they're going to do, they can do whatever they want because it harms the general welfare if you fail to pay your property taxes. We, of course, say, look, we think everyone should pay their property taxes, but you can't take and keep more than you're owed. And when, when, when the counties are doing this, because they're allowed to profit at the expense of people like Erica and her family, because they're allowed to sell this property and keep all the extra profits over you know, $107,000 in profits in the Perez family case, they have a perverse incentive to foreclose on people. So they have an incentive, actually, to do a lousy job letting people know that they're going to lose their property. It's either extreme incompetence or there is a profit incentive, and we don't know. There is actually an interesting case that came out of western Michigan where a multimillionaire bought a property and lost it because he wasn't getting his tax bills and easily could have paid the debt. There's emails that say that the county treasurer was, quote, tickled pink that they were going to get to foreclose on this property. They joked about not doing too good of a job letting the owner know because, um, well, they could have county barbecues at the property. It was this beautiful house on the lake. And the sad thing is that millionaire sued and got a pretty incredible uh, record through discovery and yet still lost his due process claim. 
We reached out to the county treasurer's office in Wayne County, Michigan, but they refused to comment. Now, the Perez family lost their property, but Christina Martin at Pacific Legal Foundation is diligently fighting to get their money back. There's a couple of remedies we're asking for. One, we're asking for the same remedy that we're asking for in the Michigan Supreme Court in another case, basically that the government has to refund the extra profits to the former owner. But in Erica's case, we're asking for something more. Um, We're asking the court to recognize that the government should not be allowed to foreclose on a huge, valuable property. Um, Here we had four apartment units and a house and two lots all to collect on a very small debt of $500. The county had other remedies available under the law. They could have actually taken the Perez's to court. They could have seized a rent payment from one of the tenants, which a rent payment would have satisfied the debt and the cost of collecting on the debt. I mean, and if they really wanted to seize property, they could have seized a single apartment unit instead of everything. And the sale of that one apartment unit certainly would have satisfied the debt that was owed. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job, Jesse, and also great job to the Pacific Legal Foundation. You can give them a donation. They're a nonprofit, and they do all of this work for free, helping people like Erica Perez fight for her rights because she couldn't have afforded to do this. It's pacificlegal.org. And by the way, this is another of our Rule of Law series, because let me tell you, What is notice, right? What is constructive notice? And the government really didn't try and get in touch with these people. What they really wanted to do, foreclose on that house and keep all the money. And we love telling stories like this, particularly these rule of law stories. Erica Perez's story this time here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our next story comes from David McGee, and he's a publisher of the Oxford Eagle here in Oxford, Mississippi, where we do this show. It's just about an hour south of Memphis, and it's a college town. It's the home of Ole Miss. David is the author of a dozen books, including How Toyota Became Number One and The John Deere Way. He's been a regular guest on CNBC and Fox Business and writes an award-winning newspaper column. He grew up in a college town, the son of a professor, an academic dean, and his son was a star in college who tragically died after graduation a few years ago from an accidental drug overdose. He wrote a column that was heartbreaking and moving, and it was called Four Ole Miss Freshmen, My Son William's Story, and we asked him to read it for us. The new freshman class started at Ole Miss this week, and I wish I could tell them all this story. It's about my oldest son, William, who was a freshman in 2008. He would gladly tell them himself, if only he were alive. With a quick wit and a big, friendly smile, William was an A student in the Honors College in Croft Institute at Ole Miss. He was fluent in Spanish, member of a fraternity, and he ran track for the Rebels his freshman and sophomore years. 
The 400 hurdles is considered by many one of the most difficult in sports. And William had the courage to walk on and do it in the Southeastern Conference. He lettered at Ole Miss his sophomore year and was rewarded by participation in the SEC Outdoor Track and Field Championships in 2010. His Ole Miss letterman's jacket that he earned is one of our family's most prized possessions. That and the plaque he received for making the SEC's all-academic team in 2010. It was quite an achievement, considering he managed the Honors College, Croft Institute, a fraternity, and track at the same time, and came out on top. Making any kind of all-SEC team is a big deal, I told him. The year he worked so hard to excel in track and academics for the Rebels, it'll be an achievement that will always mark who you are and what you can do. I still remember the pride in his voice the night he called me after receiving the plaque for the SEC Academic Honor on the floor of the Ole Miss Tad Smith Coliseum during halftime of a Rebel basketball game. I was out there with the football players, he said. It was so cool. William met a beautiful, smart girl at Ole Miss who became his girlfriend for four years in college. We loved her. We hoped they'd one day marry. He had friends who shared his joy of music and laughter and traveling the world. He was the same sweet, smart, competitive young man who sang in the church choir and camped at Alpine in summers during his youth. In college those first two years, he appeared to be all everything. And track practice kept him in check most weekdays his freshman and sophomore years. The season ran both fall and spring semester with early morning weightlifting and afternoon workouts, enough to keep anybody straight. On the weekends when the music cranked up and the lights turned low, he partied with so many other students. It was all contextualized into a good collegiate reason as opposed to abuse or a problem. It's the fraternity Christmas party. It's double-decker weekend. It's the night before the Alabama game. It's the Grove. It's a music festival. It was alcohol. It was ecstasy, marijuana, and Xanax. Lots of Xanax. We had talked before his freshman year at Ole Miss about the perils of viewing alcohol abuse and recreational drug use as something as a rite of passage in college. Some people get in so deep in college they can never get out of it, I told him. I've seen it happen too many times. Be careful. William suffered from anxiety and low self-esteem. He tried to medicate with alcohol and drugs like so many others. He was comforted that substances like alcohol brought him closer to the conversation in social situations. He was considered a square more than a partier. And William hid his habit from many friends. But privately, drawing the line was hard. And one drug led to another over time, as so often happens, sometimes by accident. I'd warned him that drug dealers can't be trusted. The drug dealers know the tricks, like mixing heroin with cocaine to make it doubly addictive before a user even knows what hit them. And it's easier to succumb when the dealer is a fraternity brother or the guy down the hall at the dorm who looks a lot like you. 
I know, he said, brushing off my warning. Everybody knows that. William was a senior at Ole Miss by the time we recognized the depths of his troubles. He graduated, another proud moment, but he was frail. He'd wanted to go to law school, but instead checked into rehabilitation. Once he realized the addiction, it advanced to the point that he was no longer the person he once was. William was scared. The drugs had taken over. Dropping our firstborn off at a rehabilitation facility that cool fall day wasn't easy. We'd hoped the 30-day stay in an inpatient treatment center would get this problem under control and his life back on track and everything gets back to normal. We were naive, maybe just hopeful, as parents tend to be. William bounced between several rehabilitation facilities around the country the next year. He was kicked out of one in Colorado because he purchased a bottle of cough syrup from a drugstore and drank it to get high. He was kicked out of another because he and a friend found a way to purchase one painkiller pill each from the outside world. They took it for old time's sake. And William confessed the misdeed to the counselor, asking for another chance, thinking his admission might make a difference. You were right, William told me. My plan was to graduate from college and quit. But quitting's harder than I thought. I'm not sure how to get out of this. We got William back into a rehab facility in Nashville, and finally, progress. He graduated to a halfway house. With a college degree, he got a job at a Mac computer store. They put him in charge of training. His co-workers bragged about his sales skills and said he was a joy to work with. Sweetest young man, they said. Oh yes, and so very smart. I quit my job and took another to be closer to him, visiting weekly and having daily phone conversations, anything to try and help. So I was alarmed one Friday night when he called and he did not answer. By the next morning, when he still did not answer, I knew. The drive to Nashville took two hours, but it felt like 22 I could not feel my hands on the wheel and my stomach churned. Once there, I found William dead from an accidental drug overdose. Our son had gotten off work that Friday and gone to a widespread panic concert where he ingested alcohol and most every drug imaginable for hours. When he got home from the concert, he texted a drug dealer and bought more drugs. That cocaine, ingested just before midnight, combined with the other drugs in his system and took his life. The body can only take so much after all. Eventually, it shuts down. Three years plus a few months later, we've made a peace with William's addiction and tragic death as much as parents can. We were blessed beyond measure to have been given the son in our lives for 23 years. Blessed beyond measure. And that is enough. We have memories of laughter and warm hugs, plus that hard-earned letter jacket from Ole Miss and so much more to cling to. 
But we don't want other students to suffer like he did or other families to suffer like we have. That's why I wish I could reach out and touch every freshman to tell them William's story, to tell them that alcohol and drug binging and abuse isn't a collegiate rite of passage or a contextual excuse. It can be a dangerous, if not deadly, path that is so hard to escape. And thank you, David, for sharing that with us. And That one part just unimaginable to me, that unanswered call where you said you knew. And I think every parent dreads that call or that unanswered call. And the son's saying to you, I'm not sure how to get out of this. That's just got to be heartbreaking. And David and his family have taken this grief and turned it into something positive. The William McGee Center for Wellness Education at Ole Miss. And they are to provide support and advocacy and awareness for alcohol and drug-related issues on the campus. And he had hoped that freshmen at Ole Miss would hear this story. And we're hoping freshmen everywhere hear this story. William McGee's story, David McGee and his family's story, here on Our American Stories. Mm-hmm.